It's February 28th, 1953, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of your DNA, the building blocks of life. So said Mr. DNA as he introduced the science bit in Jurassic Park, something he couldn't have done without the work of James Watson and Francis Crick, today in history in 1953, when they conceived, sort of, we'll get onto that, the double helix, the twisted ladder structure you're thinking of when I say... DNA. And in the early 1950s, Watson and Crick were actually only two of many scientists who were working on figuring out the structure of DNA. A California chemist called Linus Pauling had suggested an incorrect model at the beginning of 1953, and basically the race was on from that moment. Yeah, Francis Crick was British, James Watson was American. They met in 1951 when they were both working at the Cavendish Lab in Cambridge. Crick was 35, but he was still a PhD student because his original PhD had been in physics, but it was interrupted by World War II. And then he ended up working for the war effort, developing mines. And when he resumed his studies, he decided to just start again in biology. Uh, Watson was only 23. He'd been at the University of Chicago. But despite their age gap and differing personalities, Watson was a typical brash young American. Crick was a bit more reserved, although very forceful in his own way. They worked together really well. And they took everyone out to the pub tonight to announce their discovery by telling them in very humble terms, we've discovered the secret of life. (laughs) Yeah, so this actual date that we're commemorating, and it's amazing because it is the day that is commemorated across all of the history websites, is not the day where they actually sort of came up with the concept or the day that they published, which was April 25th, 1953, in Nature, perhaps the best-known article in scientific literature. It's neither of those dates. It's the day, (laughs) so you know it's in Britain, it's the day they went to the pub and told people in the pub. So they went to the (laughs) Eagle in Cambridge and announced to the whole bar, hey, we've discovered the secret of life. I mean, I have often felt that way in the bar. (laughs) It's just one of those things that you could get away with, though, because, you know, as opposed to, say, blabbing your million-pound new, I don't know, business idea... There was nothing that people in the pub could do to ca- like capitalize on the thing that they'd just heard, and it also would have just sounded like some, you know, drunk person. But they happened to be telling the truth. That's the wild thing about the thing that they shouted. They had actually found this key to life. Well, actually, the thing that they could have done if they'd been entrepreneurially minded was sketch it out, because neither Watson nor Crick were good at drawing, and in fact, it was Crick's wife, Odile who drew the double helix that was then published in Nature, um, which, again, has become one of the most famous depictions of DNA. Is It's the one you're thinking of, the one that looks like a spiral staircase, the double helix. And she, later in life, was asked about this moment, this evening in history, when he came back from the pub and apparently told everyone that he'd created the secret to life, and she doesn't remember it happening. And it's not because she says it didn't happen, it's because she says... You used to come home from work and say that sort of thing all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But as you touched on, Arian, they were far from the only scientists who were working on understanding the structure of DNA. And the other major work was happening at King's College London. It was happening under the supervision of Rosalind Franklin, who was a really interesting woman. She had passed her finals in chemistry at Cambridge's Newnham College in 1941, although at the time women couldn't be awarded degrees. They wouldn't be eligible until 1947. So basically you just ended up having to tell people, well, well, they did say that I passed the final exams. You know, I don't have the degree, but it's fine. Um, she also 
worked for the war effort during World War II. She was researching coal and how to make the most out of coal. And then after the war, she went to work for this French government lab in Paris. And she was introduced to this technique called X-ray diffraction. She was using it to carry on researching, you know, her beloved coal and carbon. She didn't have any particular interest in DNA per se at this time. So X-ray diffraction is basically you fire X-rays at a molecule, in this case, a DNA molecule, and the electron cloud around the atoms causes the rays to bend in slightly different ways, so I'm told. I'm <laughs> loving this out of three arts graduates talking Trying about science. Yes. <laughs> ultimately, the interaction of the X-rays with the molecule produce a pattern that you can then use to reveal the arrangement of the atoms inside the molecule. But she was using it without any, you know, she wasn't using it to work on DNA. She was then headhunted, basically, to work at the lab at King's College because she was one of the few people who had experience in using X-ray diffraction, which was, uh, you know, quite a niche technology. Technology. And this led to kind of the big personality clash that was at the centre of what unfolded next, which was that they already had a researcher there who was deep into studying DNA structure, a guy called Morris and Wilkins. And he was a man. Mm. And he was a man. Right. So he already had all the qualifications. <laughs> yeah, he had it written down that he had a degree. <laughs> but he did get, he got done dirty here, I have to say, in Morris Wilkins' defence. What happened was that the lab director, this guy called John Randall, it's not clear whether Randall loved chaos or whether he just hated confrontation, but he basically <laughs> waited until Wilkins was on holiday and then wrote Franklin a letter saying, oh, when you come here, like, you're going to be in charge of everything and you're going to be the only person working on this he didn't ever mention this to Wilkins so Wilkins came back found that Rosalind Franklin had taken over everything that he was doing and she was now the supervisor of his graduate student a guy called Ray Gosling so there was bad blood there from the beginning and it kind of seems like neither of them they they were I could just imagine them having all of these really loaded conversations in the lab where neither of them understood why the other person was being such a dick. <laughs> and the way that that bad blood spilled out was that ultimately Wilkins ended up showing some of these X-ray diffusion images to James Watson over in Cambridge. And he reported in the that instant of having seen these images, he said, the instant I saw the picture, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race. But afterwards, Watson and Crick, they made a crucial advance, which was that they proposed that the DNA molecule was these two chains of what are called nucleotides paired in such a way so as to form this uh, double helix shape. Yeah, but she'd provided the evidence. There was no supporting experimental evidence beyond her photograph. The sad thing is that she died, age Mm. 37, in 1958. And then four years later, a Nobel Prize was jointly awarded to Crick, Watson and Wilkins for showing them her photo, (laughs) but not her. Um, But anyway, I mean, you know, at least the record has been corrected on this point since. The crucial thing is what's the discovery actually led science onto, what it gave rise to, which is modern molecular biology, genetic fingerprinting, modern forensics, the mapping of the human genome, gene therapy. Yeah, I mean, all of that stuff that we now do take for granted in so much of, like, biology and medicine, like prenatal screening for diseases, um, genetic engineered foods, even, as you say, the ability to test with any sort of accuracy physical evidence in order to, you know, convict or exonerate criminals. Which 
makes it all the more surprising that the release of this news in the mainstream media was such a slow burn. Science communication as a field was still a long way off and institutions <laughs> were so much less savvy about framing their discoveries in a way that people could get excited about. So the way that this was first announced was that the director of the Cavendish Lab, Sir Lawrence Bragg, announced it at a conference on proteins in Belgium oh. on the 8th of April, 1953. His name's Perhaps- Bragg. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, harder. Bragg a little. Come yeah. on. <laughs> so, I mean, perhaps unsurprisingly, given the location, the media did not pick up on the news or its significance. It wasn't until the end of April when Nature published three articles about the breakthroughs in understanding DNA. Although even there, in Nature, there is some pretty classic understatement. I mean, I think the English one must have written this, right? Quote, It has not escaped our notice that the specific pairing we have postulated immediately suggests a possible copying mechanism for the genetic material. <laughs> I mean, well, I suppose, that doesn't sound like headline news, does yeah, it? Yeah, but I suppose at that stage you don't know that, and this can be really good for busting crims. You know, that's the thing yeah. that you want to say, but you didn't yeah. immediately know its applications at this stage. Yeah, I think one thing that majorly sort of tainted the legacy was James Watson's memoir, The Double Helix, which was released in 1968, which is just... Ooh, you can see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where. I don't know where to begin. No. First off, he, his depiction of Rosalind Franklin is so incredibly ungenerous and scathing. He portrays her as basically a menace, as though she was getting in Wilkins' way rather than being in charge. You know, she was fierce. She was confrontational. She was very temperamental. But you know, obviously, in a male scientist, that wouldn't have necessarily been particularly interesting. And he literally admitted in the memoir. He said, "Rosie, of course, did not directly give us her data for that." matter no one at king's realized they were in our hands you know he didn't really care about it but the thing was that his portrayal of everyone was awful like they before harvard university press were going to release this memoir they insisted that he circulate some drafts to the people who were involved in the story and everybody hated it Mm. even morris wilkins who had had this rivalry with rosalind franklin said that his descriptions of her appearance which as you can imagine were like unflattering and snide he said they were inane and not true and noted that his portrayal of everyone involved but himself were inaccurate and unflattering and actually on the basis of this harvard university press actually decided not to publish it It was published by a commercial publisher in the end see even illustrious science graduates find it hard to do arts yeah (laughs) so easy the other way around is it <laughs> tomorrow i'm sure they intended to return the baby alive it sounds like a tragic accident doesn't it ditch the ads and get a sunday episode when you join club retrospectors subscribe now on apple podcasts part of the acast creator network